With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Uh, this evening, our guest will be Wendy Friesen, who is a hypnotherapist who works with addictions and many other problems, and then Bruce Alexander, who has done the Rat Park model of addiction. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your, How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. Or for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Wendy Friesen, who is a hypnotherapist and who's done a lot of work with addictions and many other things. And Wendy, welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm glad to have you. Um, I was poking around out there on the PubMed uh, database, and I saw that there were a couple of good articles that were published recently about smoking cessation that show uh, some really good evidence-based randomized clinical studies that show that hypnotherapy can be effective for smoking cessation. So that sounds like a really good thing. I, I sent those to you. Did you get a chance to look at those? Yeah, I did. And, you know, I'm always fascinated with the studies because hypnotherapy generally shows really positive results for all kinds of things, but particularly for habits and addictions. And we have this amazingly powerful tool, and it's been really well-researched. You know, there's research in all sorts of medical aspects, doing surgery with hypnosis with no anesthesia, things like that. But for addictions and habits, it seems to have a really good success rate. I think smoking, you know, was in that range of about 30% long-term. But the, the thing is that there's so many different methods of hypnotherapy that one person's hypnotherapy may have no effect at all, and another person's may have, an, you know, 50%, 80%, 10% success rate. You just have so many variables. Okay. Well, what are some of the different ways to do it? I mean, can you just do one session and it will work and people will walk away and be cured? With some people, you can, um, and for some, you know, purposes. Like if someone was going to quit drinking alcohol and they just had everything in place in their mind, in their physical body, in their their life day to day, and they just had made this decision and they're going to go, yes, I'm going to go use hypnosis and I know it's going to work. And so they have all their ducks in a row and everything falls into place in one session. Uh, they, it'll happen and it can happen and they can, you know, quit and feel really free. That's not necessarily the way people who have addictions come into a situation like that, right? Most people mm-hmm. who have addictions are pretty ambivalent. There's a lot of pain in giving up your addiction. Mm-hmm. So what has to happen, in my experience, is you have to cover a lot of bases, especially drug and alcohol addiction is so complicated. There's so many underlying causes. There's self-sabotage issues. There's... Um, 
secondary gain issues for, you know, what the addiction gives you in a positive way. There's all sorts of pain that it's covering up. And then there are triggers that are so deep-seated. With some of my clients, the triggers were set as early as two or three years old. And those are things that are pretty powerful in your physiology and your emotions and your mental state. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, do you think uh, hypnotherapy can be an adjunct to uh, other programs? Um, is it a standalone therapy, or does it work better with in combination with other things, do you think? Well, I know that I've had a lot of my clients and customers only use hypnotherapy and be very successful, but my my absolute you know, core belief is that you've got to address all the areas of your physical, mental, emotional health. So, you know, a person's physical body is just so trashed from alcoholism. They've got to look at the nutrition they need to restore their body and brain balance and the neurotransmitter levels in their brain. And they've got to look at all the things they have to repair with, you know, liver and enzymes and chemical problems in their body. I think there's a really important piece that has to happen with nutrition and supplements and looking at deficiencies and damage that they've done in their body. How about other uh, psychotherapeutic uh, techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy or harm reduction or strength charting or things like that? Do you think they're useful adjuncts to hypnotherapy? Oh, absolutely. I was reading your book. I started reading it about a month ago, and I was really fascinated with looking at how it creates accountability and it helps a person have, like, a personal choice and decision. And they're they're learning how to create self-discipline and how to keep themselves accountable to themselves. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is awesome for changing those habitual things that happen, you know, day to day. So the thing that hypnotherapy does, it makes it... Um, that makes it so long-lasting and makes it so permanent, if it's being done right, is that a person should be taken into their imaginary future. So you take them six months in the future, a year in the future, five years in the future, and at each of those moments, what you're doing is you're changing a core belief that they have about themselves. The most people who are alcoholics or drug addicts, they're looking at themselves as always being a failure, and they only project into the future that they're going to fail so their brain doesn't even have the, you know, the neural wiring that has the possibility of them becoming clean or sober. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, so what we do, and we found that with hypnotherapy, a person's brain starts doing the neural wiring and hooking up these neural networks even though you're just imagining it. So if you're imagining yourself a year in the future and you're hearing me say, at this moment, notice how proud you are and how strong you are that it's been a year since you decided to stop drinking. Your body's healthy. Your relationships are good. You can feel what it is that life really means for you now. And as you look back from that one year in the future, you realize that that was the best day of your life when you made that commitment for good. So then a person looks at and imagines themselves being in that scenario. Then they go into that body and experience it and absorb the belief. Then they come back to the present moment, but they've been changed. Their brain is not the same. They have this actual neural network that now supports all the emotions and thoughts and beliefs and everything about being successful. And I just think that's where the magic is, and that's why hypnotherapy, with the way that I do it, has been so successful for people who have failed you know, for years or decades of their life. Okay, do you uh, give people anything that they can take home with them, like uh, self-hypnosis, 
or tapes or CDs or anything to work with in addition to the sessions they do with you? Yeah, in fact, um, you know, in the beginning I was seeing clients in my office for it, and I was actually seeing clients for just some really difficult addictions, like even crack addiction and meth and things like that, and I was so surprised at the results because the results are really good. Um, so what I did is I created a program that's called Alcohol Freedom, and it's a, it's about 20 sessions, and so everybody gets that and takes it home, and all of these sessions take you through different processes because so much has to heal. There's a forgiveness piece that has to happen where you forgive yourself and forgive the others in your life and offer forgiveness during the session. There's um, releasing the triggers. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's this fascinating thing that I read about triggers um, or that applies to the way we set triggers. So these people were given a button in their left hand and right hand, and one is button A and one is button B. And then they wired their brains up to, I believe it was um, a PET scan, but what they saw was how they made decisions. So they would say, okay, as soon as you think you're going to press button A or B, go ahead and press it. The same moment you decide to press it. So they would do that, and they would press button B or button A. And what they found was that the brain had already decided which button was going to be pressed up to 10 seconds before the person thought they made the decision to press it. So what this told me is, this thing that's being triggered, let's say to have a craving for alcohol or make a decision to drink, that happens long before you knew that it was, like, you know, swelling up in your brain, and you had to fight that decision that had already been made in your brain and your body and fight it with willpower. So we know that we've got to do something to um, just eliminate these triggers on a subconscious level in that place where they're made before you have any conscious awareness of them being made. I hope you didn't lose me there. No, I understand what you're speaking of. Uh, yeah. So, so then I take all these triggers, and and once you change the triggers so that if you see alcohol, you smell alcohol, you drive by your favorite bar, a friend offers you a drink, whatever it is, those become triggers that trigger you on a deep subconscious level to be healthy, strong, and in control, and everything that means. So one of my customers who only used the CD program, he didn't see me in person, he said he had quit drinking for a month and he was at um, some office meeting thing, it was at a bar, and his co-worker bought his favorite whiskey, didn't know that he quit drinking, bought his favorite whiskey for him and waved it under his nose. And believe it or not, the smell of that whiskey actually made him stronger. He said, when I smelled it, I knew that I was totally free. I felt really strong. And that's pretty amazing when you consider how strong the smell of alcohol is, huh? Yeah, that is very amazing. Do you think it's possible, um, you know, a, a lot of treatment programs have people that are coerced against their will. They don't want to stop drugs or alcohol, but, yeah. you know, they've, they've been sent by the government. Do you think uh, hypnotherapy is successful in a coercive setting like that? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um Personally, I feel that uh, this one technique that I use creates motivation for people even if they didn't have it. And it's, uh, it, there's nothing like um, like subliminal or nothing underhanded about it. It's just it, it's motivating them because I have them travel in the, in the hypnosis session, have them travel on two different paths. So it's like there's this life path and there's a fork in the road. And they travel on the one to the left, which 
has them continuing to drink, destroying their lives. They've got nothing. Now they're 20 years older and they're still doing the same thing and all the disappointment. And I bring them back to that fork in the road and have them travel on the path to the right and go 5, 10, 20 years in the future, bring them back to that fork in the road again and have them make that decision any time they decide to, you know, to drink or to use drugs or whatever it is they're going to do to destroy their life, they get to decide from that point. Because it's like their brain it knows now it has to take a little more accountability to either be the, you know, bum in the gutter or dead or, you know, alone and sick or to have a life that they really do want. Because that, that path on the right gets really compelling. It's really, you know, just knowing that you have something you'll be proud of and that you'll be doing that really matters to you. Okay, our guest is Wendy Friesen, and her website is wendy.com. That's W-E-N-D-I.com. It's got a lot of information on it. And um, tell me, I was asking you earlier when I talked to you on the phone before the show, um, is what's a good way to find a hypnotherapist? Um, if some, I mean, do you think some hypnotherapists are better than others, and how do you find a good one? Yeah, they are. There's there's such a variety of types of training and styles and skills. So one thing you want to do, you can do an internet search and you can just read about that person, see how their training looks, and just see if they resonate for you. And then go and ask for a free consultation. Most of them will do that. And spend an hour with them and find out if you feel like you have confidence in them because you've got to feel comfortable. You've got to have confidence in what they do. If you don't, it's definitely not going to work. Um, I have a directory, and it's free for hypnotherapists, free for the clients. Yeah, I make absolutely no money on it. It's just it's just to serve the hypnotherapist in finding clients and clients in finding the hypnotherapist. But anyway, it's at registeredhypnotherapist.com. So they can go there and they can see ratings and information and search by zip code and such. Okay, very good. We have a couple of callers here. Uh, they might just be listening or they might have questions. I'm going to check and see. I'm going to bring them on and see if they have a question. Um, I'm bringing on the caller from the 352 area code. Do you have a question for Wendy? Hello, caller. Do you have a question you'd like to ask Wendy? I think this person is just listening right now. Yeah. I'm going to try my other caller and see if they have a question for you. Hello, caller from 757 area code. Do you have a question you would like to ask Wendy? Now, I don't think they have questions, so we're going to put them back on hold, and I'm going to go on and ask you, uh, do you think there are differences between uh, using hypnotherapy for smoking cessation as opposed to, say, alcohol or alcohol as opposed to other addictions? What's your experience? Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I think, you know, smoking, you know, it's all addictive and it does fall into that whole addiction pattern. But smoking is a different beast. It requires a totally different set of tools. Because what people are faced with is a different reason that they started smoking. It's a different benefit that they get from it. It has, and it's a little more convoluted as far as what it does for them in their life and how it controls them and how they use that to control parts of their life. So what I've learned with addiction with alcoholism 
um, you know, people are just so much more out of control with it. They feel so much more helpless and weak and powerless to change it. One of the reasons I think that is, and um, certainly this isn't AA bashing by any means, however, if they've been through AA and they've done a lot of 12-step work in the past, they've felt that their identity is that of an addict and that they're diseased and that they will be an alcoholic for life. And this is tough because, you know, if you quit smoking 10 years from now, you don't introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm Wendy, I'm a smoker, because mm-hmm. you're not. And if you used to bite your nails when you were 20 years old and now you're 30, you don't say, hi, I'm Wendy, I'm a nail biter. But yet we want this label of being an alcoholic to stick with you the rest of your life. And the identity issues and the benefits that you get from being part of that that group and that consciousness and being powerless to stop drinking is, in my mind, really dangerous. And I think that's why, you know, the AA and 12-step model has such a horribly low success rate. Well, I would agree with you that... Uh I agree with you on that, and I think it's definitely limited to uh, appealing to certain types of people, and it does not appeal to actually the majority of people with the problem um, mm-hmm. because they can't identify with powerless. They're looking for something to empower them to make a change. Mm-hmm. And exactly. as um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapists actually tell people, don't put labels on yourself. Don't if you have depression. Don't go around saying, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm a depressed person. That will just help, you know, it stick with you, you know. Yeah, say, exactly. Yeah, you can say, I don't have to be depressed, you know. I might be depressed now, but it's temporary. I can overcome depression. I can mm-hmm. become a non-depressed person. Yeah, and, it's, you know, since I've been doing hypnotherapy, which has been about 15 years, it's always been the big disconnect is the principles of what AA teaches you about your identity and what you're going to hang on to as opposed to what we know about how the brain works. And someone comes into my office for, let's say, nail biting, and I'm going to help them to become a person with clean, healthy hands that they love and they never have to think about biting their nails again and so on. And so then I, you know, take them into this future where their hands are beautiful. Well, it wouldn't make any sense for me to use that AA model on any possible condition a person has and say, you know, in this case, you're saying you're an alcoholic, you're powerless, you're an alcoholic for life, one day at a time, relapse is part of recovery. Instead, what we know about how the brain works is we have to put the, the beliefs in there that, you know, for alcoholism, that you, you did it, you overcame it. It's something that you struggled with in the past, but now you're strong and healthy and in control. You're a person who loves life now. You're doing things that really make you happy. You know, so we're not we're not even going to dip our little toe into that um, that label of being an alcoholic. It just wouldn't make sense to do it that way. Yet they do. You know, AA does that all over the place. Yes, and uh, other organizations, um, Smart Recovery or our Hands Group or other people, we don't use that labeling because uh, we don't really find it's helpful. And, you know, we tell people, you know, you can say you're an ex-drinker because you're not drinking anymore. You can say, I changed my drinking habits for the better. I'm happy with my new changed drinking habits, you know. Exactly. And the other thing, you know, that I mentioned early on, which is about the neural networks in the brain, 
this is something we're learning so much about that when you think a thought, it starts wiring something to support that thought in your brain and these neural networks become permanent. So we've got to create a neural network that says that you used to have a drinking habit, but now you're healthy and strong and in control and all the things you love about yourself and your life so that when you're thinking, should I have a drink or not, your brain automatically goes to that new neural network that says, I did it, I'm proud of myself, my life is, you know, going down the healthy road. It's so important. And then there's other things, like going into the future and observing yourself, your imaginary self as being clean and sober. You're mm-hmm. using mirror neurons. And I Have you heard of mirror neurons? Um, I don't believe so. Mirror neurons are something they've discovered in the last 10 years or so, and they are, that's what helps us learn to walk when we're a baby. It learns, helps us learn a new skill. We observe uh, uh, people yeah. on our... Yeah, our body recreates the physiology, and it goes to work wiring up the neural networks in there to get us to have that ability and that drive. So when you're watching your imaginary self being clean and sober, your mirror neurons are at work, and they're actually starting to build this image of yourself being a healthy, strong, in-control person who doesn't even have to think about alcohol. But then you think about all the meetings in AA that you have to go to if you're going that route, and that's what your brain is wiring every time you go to a meeting. And that's what your mirror neurons are working on, imitating in every possible way that person's behavior that you're watching. Isn't that amazing to think about? Just, oh, hard to imagine that we're still using something that's so antiquated. Well, I know one thing that uh, people will say in AA... You know, even after 20 years of abstinence, they will say, well, I'm just one drink away from a relapse. And, you know, it kind of just keeps people on the edge. Um, Mm -hmm. Other studies, um, Prochaska and DiClemente and Norcross did studies of smokers and found that, you know, people who quit smoking for five years, ten years, they weren't thinking about smoking anymore. Many of them, you know, it was no longer part of their mindset. You know, they just forgot about it. Right, because they want to achieve the status of being a non-smoker and saying, yeah, I quit 10 years ago. I'm the best thing I ever did, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's end of conversation. But with alcoholism, I've, my oldest son has had a big addiction problem for many years. And one of the things that I learned when I went to all the rehab meetings with him, and he's been to rehab five times, this at one of the meetings, there's a man who came in. He said, I've been sober for 20 years. I'm George. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for 20 years. And one thing I want to tell all of you is that even today, I'm just hoping to make it till midnight. So what he was telling these people is that they're going to be struggling even 20 years from now. They're going to be white-knuckling it every day. And he continued to drive that message home. And he glamorized all his drunken experiences he had everybody laughing about how he used to steal alcohol when he was on the, you know, on an airplane flight. And as a hypnotist, what he was doing, he was not a hypnotist, but standing mm-hmm. up in front, he's hypnotizing people to believe that they're weak, powerless, that they're always going to be struggling, and that it's fun to steal alcohol. Oh, my gosh. I was just, I was sitting there biting my lip, I'll tell you. So it was tough. Yeah, I've been there. I mean, I've been through two rehab programs. Um, one was a very traditional 12-step. The other was a little different and kind of mixed up some cognitive behavioral therapy in there 
And I did find that quite helpful and incorporated many of those things, and they were useful. But, you know, my experiences with the 12-step were actually I drank more than I ever had before in my life, and I wound up in detox with, you know, really bad withdrawal syndrome, and, you know, I could have had a heart attack. And I said, you know, I just have to, wow. I have to leave AA or I will drink myself to death. I've heard that from a lot of people because I've got a tremendous amount of email and phone calls to my office. Because one of my radio commercials that I used to run, it said something about, um, you know, Susan called me and she told me that the one time when she just has to drink is when she leaves an AA meeting. If she doesn't go to an AA meeting, she's fine, but she has to go and that makes her drink. And then people were like, me too, oh my gosh, I get just so, you know, zonked out at the meeting, I have to drink. Because they're watching that behavior, they're identifying with it, they're in that whole weak, helpless, powerless mode. And then what are you going to, and you're sad, you're listening to people's sad, sad stories. Oh my gosh, it's just, you know, your your emotions are just fried at that point. So yeah, you're right, a lot of people are thinking it's just them. They think, you know, everybody else does fine, but I leave an AA meeting and go get loaded. They think it's only them. Yeah, that's it's one of the things that happens there is, you know, you have to uh, kind of stick with the party line there. You can't really, you know, shoot up your hand and say, you know, listening to all this is making me want to drink. Can't we change the topic to something else like ping pong? I know. I went to one of the rehabs and I did a presentation for them. Because the director said, you know, our it's a really big one in Southern California, by the way. He said, our success rate is under 10%. It's probably only 5%, even like 60 days out. We don't know what to do. Because all they were doing is charging them a lot of money and driving them to AA meetings twice a day. And so I went and did a presentation for a lot of the residents or guests or whatever you call them there. And they were so excited. These people felt like they had been given, you know, the ticket to freedom. I had them experience that going into the future. It was so different than anything they experienced. They were just jumping for joy, man. It was was a nice eye-opener. You know, but there's more to it. They didn't hire me to do an entire program in there. Um... And that's a whole other, you know, area of discussion is the whole rehab industry, but needs to be overhauled, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I can agree uh, with that, you know. Um, Project Match is something that the NIAAA did recently, and uh, but what they did was uh, measure improvement instead of measure perfect abstinence, and, you know, most of these um, rehab programs very often, you know, if you relapse, you are discharged from the program. That's standard in many of them. And they oh, they told, throw you out instantly, yeah. And they actually yeah. told people, you know, uh, you know, every abstinence day you have is a good one. And instead of saying, you know, you lose all your time, they said, well, you know, think that you had many good days that you abstained, and you know, be proud of yourself for those. And so. I mean, they called it a 12-step approach, but it was very different than what's usually used in most uh, 12-step rehabs that are actually operating out there. And, of course, they did have a much better success rate when they introduced these things of, you know, be proud of every day that you can abstain. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I got from reading your book, too. One of the things I was reading is um, one of your methods for detoxing if you don't want to go do a medical detox. And it was really really good, the things that you write down and the plan that you have and you know exactly how much you're going to drink like every hour or every other hour and how you step down. But it teaches someone to be so in control of what they're drinking that even though you're in your own detox process, 
you're feeling proud of yourself because you improved something and you actually built feelings of pride, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we have I learned a, a lot from your book. It's awesome. <laughs> Everybody should get it. It's great. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, what uh, parting words would you like to uh, leave us with? Well, I just want people to have an open mind. And even if someone has really, you know, indoctrinated you to feel that you're going to fail, you're going to relapse, that, you know, you'll always be just, you know, one drink away from, you know, falling again. It's different. There is something different you can do. Um, one of my clients is the best inspiration. He failed all of his life at rehab, 50 years old. He was ready to give up and didn't know what else to do. He's now, for five years, he's been sober from the minute he listened to the CDs, and he's a triathlete traveling the world doing triathlons because that's what he put into his future and into his life. And he loved that so much he didn't need to drink. Anyway, there's a free session that people can listen to. It's at quitdrinkingnow.com, and it's a free session. You can experience that going into the future and meeting yourself, you know, the person that's really healthy and strong. So that's just a great thing for people to try it out. Okay, very good. I see we have a caller here from a 250 area code. This might be Bruce Alexander. I'm going to bring this person on. Hello, caller. Hello. It's yes. Bruce Alexander. Yes, I'm calling from Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay, it's very good to have you. I'm going to finish up with Wendy here, and then we will go on to your segment. Okay. Wendy, thank you very much for being our guest tonight. Uh, the website is wendy.com. It's W-E-N-D-I.com. There's a lot of good information on there. Thank you for coming. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. That was great. I'm always really excited to help spread the word and help give people some hope that there's another way to get their life back. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And um, just very quickly, I'm going to plug our website, hamsnetwork.org, a free of charge support group for people that want to make any positive change in their drinking, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. The book is How to Change Your Drinking, a harm reduction guide to alcohol, available on Amazon. More information at hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our next guest is uh, Dr. Bruce Alexander, who uh, did a study called Brett Park, um, quite a while back, and it really had some big repercussions on research into addiction and changed a lot of people's views about addiction. I first read about it in some work by Stanton Peel, then I wrote a description of it myself, and Dr. Alexander has continued to work on environmental influences and on how society can affect addiction. Dr. Alexander, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Ken. Tell us about your Rat Park study. Um, you know, assume our audience knows nothing about this. So where did this come from and what, how did it work? Well, it's ancient history. It, um, it happened in the late 1970s. It was at a, a period in which people, you know, were really, really very serious about Skinner boxes, mm -hmm. those little boxes that you put rats in and let them press the lever on the wall. And in those days, it, uh, people thought that you could prove that um, heroin was, or heroin or any of the devil drugs were irresistibly addicting 
by showing that if you make those things available to rats and let rats press the little lever on the wall in order to get an injection of heroin or cocaine or amphetamine or whatever, if you do that, that the rats would in fact press and press and press and they would take lots of heroin and cocaine and amphetamine and that this seemed to prove in those days that these drugs were irresistibly addicting. Well, as I say, that's, that's ancient history. You know, uh, we now know that those drugs aren't irresistibly addicting. We know that people can use them, and some people do get, of course, terribly addicted, and that's catastrophic, but other people use them and so forth. But in those days, it seemed like here at last was the scientific proof that these drugs, you know, would addict anybody who tried them, including even a little white rat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so our 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 experiment is simply to to you know show what's wrong what's obviously wrong with that that uh that other kind of research so we we simply took rats and put them in a what we called rat park which was just a a big space where there was lots of room for rats to play and mate and you know do all the things which rats do and uh, offered them the opportunity to press the little lever to get heroin or cocaine or or amphetamine, and and they didn't do it. And so, in a, in a nutshell, Rat Park simply shows that if you if you allow creatures to have the opportunity to live in a normal, you know, something approaching a normal uh, integrated kind of colony or society, well, addiction is not really an issue. They don't do it. But if you put them in solitary confinement. As, which is what a, a Skinner box amounts to. If you put them in solitary confinement, well, yes, they'll they'll take all the all the addicting drugs that that, that they possibly can, and they'll eventually kill themselves with it. The question is, of course, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, I've, and 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 the, the experiment itself is ancient history. We did it in the 1970s, but ever since then, we've been trying to work out the. The implications of this. What does this really tell us about addiction? I think it tells us a lot. Well, I have to say, um, when I was taking my degree in psychology and substance abuse, my master's at the New School just a couple years ago, um, and that's the New School in uh, New York City, they were still talking about some of these experiments uh, with uh, animals that are confined in Skinner boxes or similar, you know, things where they're totally unnatural environment, and they were still presenting this to us as uh, important evidence. I mean, there were... Well... Yes. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, And that is despite the fact that the Rat Park results are, of course, published in the appropriate journals, and other people have replicated them. There's no doubt that it's true. Mm yeah, there's a there's a mainstream of of addiction theory and research, or I call it the official view, which simply ignores the fact that that this you know there's this kind of a problem, and and that's part of our problem with addiction. Addiction is not um, it's not a field of open scientific or or scholarly research. Addiction is very much controlled by you know very different political and religious viewpoints which um don't mind ignoring facts if they if they don't fit the pattern so so yes this this kind of of research on rats is has has gone on to this day despite the fact that not only did did we show that it you know it's seriously flawed 
Um, but other people have shown it too in all kinds of ways, and 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 that's a that's a huge problem. It is indeed. I mean, I agree absolutely that uh, our research, our treatment programs, so many things are controlled by political forces rather than by scientific knowledge. Um, in the United States, we want to treat all drug users as addicts, and we have the argument: should we give them treatment or should we give them prison? But aren't many drug users, recreational drug users? Well, of course you know that they are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you're right. That's that's a good example. It's a fact that everybody who knows anything about the field knows that that most drug users are recreational users and most recreational users don't have any particular problems with being recreational users. Everyone knows that. But there still remains a, a kind of a mentality which says that, that every drug user is on the verge of becoming addicted and therefore needs either treatment or jail. Yeah, too bad. Um, we, you know, it's a, it's a field that is corrupted by political influence because it's so important. Um, and maybe I could elaborate a little bit on that. Um, the fact is that addiction is much more important than we than we generally like to acknowledge. Um, for example, I I go around and I give speeches, and and one of the things I always ask before I give a speech is, well, what do you think is the most dangerous addiction? And and much of the time, people say, well, money is. And and I think they're right. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think of of the uh, you know the these terribly rich, wealth-addicted people who, who run enormous investment banks and hedge funds and all the rest of it, many of whom have, uh, you know, are, are well-known to be wealth addicts. So, I mean, these guys are doing enormous amounts of harm, amounts of harm to the world, which, which uh, you know, are, you know, overshadow any harm that, you know, a whole army of junkies can do. <laughs> These are very powerful people, very powerful addicted people doing a lot of harm. Now, I just mentioned that fact to show that, that what we've done is we've, we've narrowed, constrained, and really trivialized the problem of addiction to the point where it, it um, you know, we've, we've lost the, the importance of, uh, we've lost its importance. We've, we've lost a sense of of how important addiction really is and how much, how very important it is for us to bring it under control. Rather, we, you know, we go on forever burbling about, um, you know, the brain and the um, drug addictions as if, as if those were the major problems of addiction. Well, they're not. Yes, people like to talk a lot about genetics and as if that was controlling, but you can't change somebody's genes. Well, no, it's true. You can't change somebody's genes. And, <clears throat> you know, that's a whole other line of, of diversion, according to me. I mean, it is true that some people can use drugs and some people can use money without getting addicted, and other people mm -hmm. can't. That's true. But, but really the evidence that that should be understood genetically is... Um, microscopic. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, the evidence doesn't apply to anything other than alcohol and the and the you know the study, the twin studies and the um, adoption studies really don't prove very much 
Um, I, I think the whole the whole genetic argument is is you know is, is highly overrated. Can, can I tell you what I think is really going on? Please. Yeah. Um, what I, it goes back to Red Park. If you take up animals which are normally social animals and you put them in solitary confinement, you found what? They act like addicts. Well, imagine that you you had a society of human beings, and you um, essentially destroy their culture and make them put them in the position where they are all actually isolated individuals rather than members of an intact society. Would they all become addicts? Well, yes. The answer is yes. That experiment's been done a thousand times. Um, in North America, we we can see that experiment in terms of what's happened to the North American Indians. You take Indians who were, you know, they were noble savages. They had all kinds of problems, just like other people. But they didn't have addiction problems. Mm-hmm. You take them and you destroy their culture. And what happens? Now you've got these, they aren't in, isolated in, in individual cages, but they're, they're isolated because their culture's been destroyed. And what happens? You get this enormous, enormous problem of, of, of addiction and what do you, uh, alcohol addiction, and what do you blame it on? Not destroying the culture, you blame it on genetics. You say, mm-hmm. well, you know, the Indians don't have a the gene which protects the the white guys from alcoholism. Well, that's a little <laughs> strange, don't you think? I mean, the obvious fact is that is that we destroyed these people's culture, just like we destroy the rats' culture when we put them in individual cages, and they act like they act like terrible addicts. And, and you would think that would be recognized as the cause. In fact, th- this is my my message. In fact, I think that the history of the last several hundred years shows really clearly that when a when social fragmentation is breaking down people's society, whether they're native people or people in highly industrialized societies or very rich people on Wall Street. When when people are isolated and have nothing else to live for, addiction becomes an issue. And it may be drug addiction, or it may be money addiction, or it may be sex addiction, or on and on and on. You can name a thousand things that, that, that people are likely to get addicted to. And what I'm talking about here is a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. If, if if we shift the paradigm, if we, if we stop burbling about drugs and, and the brain and stuff like that, and and start considering the larger issue of addiction, what we see is we have a, a really large social problem that we have to deal with. And 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 the problems of, of, of alcohol and drug addiction, of course, are very real. But mm. they are, are just a corner. They are just a corner of a much larger problem. That is what I think we've, we've lost sight of. And that's where I think the Rat Park experiment starts us on a road of Towards towards thinking very clearly that, or towards thinking more clearly anyway, that um, is going to eventually get us out of this trap because it's a very big trap. So, do you think uh, we need to do a lot of social reforms? Is that the best way to uh, attack addiction? Well, social reforms, sure, but again, you, you you have to look at it in terms of where we are in history. Um. We happen to be at a point in history where you know our our social institutions are collapsing. Like mm-hmm. this week, what's what's collapsed? Scotland Yard has you know been been exposed to be a, 
something that nobody thought it was, and the and the the, the newspapers in in England are being exposed as something nobody thought it was, and the you know last week, what was the scandal? Well, I don't know, but but you know basically we're our governments are being exposed as simply you know products of of um, the interests of, of of very rich people, and. Uh, we happen to be in a declining civilization. I mean, too bad. This is this is a very big problem. But it also is a situation in which we we really can talk about social reform in a serious way, because you know, 20 years from now, we're not going to have the same social institutions we we have now. We're going to have dramatically different ones, and we are in a period of incipient social change where. Um, you know, we really have to start looking at the at the underlying social causes of our serious problems. And, of course, that's obvious when it comes to global warming, right? We've got to have a, mm-hmm. a different way of of um, organizing our industry if we're, if we're going to not drown ourselves in the coastal regions or, you know, heat up the planet to the point of, of self-destruction. But it's also true for these psychological problems. If we want to deal with this, a psychological problem like alcoholism, that's the case in point. If we want to deal with alcoholism, we've got to take it out of a, a narrow pigeonhole in which we, we're saying, you know, well, alcoholism, we, you know, how do we treat it, blah, blah, blah. We've got to take it out of that narrow pigeonhole and say, you know, where does this problem fit in the total scheme of things in the, in the, in the world situation right now? May I may I add that I have a website called globalizationofaddiction.ca, and I hope everybody will come and visit me on this website, globalizationofaddiction.ca, because it it is there that we can talk about um, this problem in a whole different way, and I don't think we're going to get anywhere with it until we do. And and if I could stick in one more thing, mm-hmm. I, you know my my chief. Uh, <laughs> Uh, claim to to know anything in this field is that I'm really old. I mean, I started working in the addiction field in 1970. That's more than 40 years. I've been in it a long time. I can tell you that the kind of arguments that that you know we've been having in this field have changed very little over 40 years. We're still we're still arguing the same stuff. Um, that's why Rat Park is is relevant now. You know, it was relevant mm-hmm. 40 years. Oh, it's still relevant because. Um, because we're still arguing the same stuff. Well, we've got to change our paradigm, and and that's what I, that's what I, I I think is is the take-home message. Well, I think that's why some people like the genetic model. They can just say, well, these people were born bad. We don't have to change anything in society. It's all their fault, and they can put all the blame on you know the people that have the problems. Sure, that's right. Um, the genetic model is it does that for you, or the demon drug model does that for you. We can say, well, this drug is you know it's irresistible, therefore the problem is in the drug. All we got to do is crush the the dealers and stuff. Or you know the genetic model, the demon drug model, all they're doing is distracting our attention from the fact that we've got a real uh, we've got a real problem here. We've got a social problem, um, and our our grandparents understood this much better than we do. You know, when when people are behaving badly, when people are, are you know acting like drunks and and you know treating their families very badly, 
Well, there's always a cause. It's not that there's there's something wrong with their genes, or it's not that there's the drug is irresistible. It's that you know they're they're in a situation which is which is trapping them, and 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 we can't really get them out of that situation one by one because the situation is much bigger than that. It's a global situation. And we have to start thinking about, you know, what kind of a world would be a world that could be safe for people to be sober in? Absolutely. Um, we had uh, Dr. Gabor Mate on here uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about that he thought that uh, trauma could turn on genes. He was talking about turning genes on and off. And he thought that, you know, trauma would turn on genes that would lead to addiction. Do you think that there's validity in that reasoning? Well, uh, Gabor's a friend of mine, actually. We're we're both from from here, from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I take his ideas very seriously. Um... And and if you read his book, his latest book is called The uh, um, Hungry Ghosts, mm-hmm. in the realm of hungry ghosts. He he does introduce these kinds of genetic ideas, but he also introduces a whole series of other ideas. He he, he means each of these ideas to be to be put in a pigeonhole and uh, to be put in a you know an appropriate place, mm-hmm. and he doesn't mean any of them to be. Be definitive, so I, I I think I can safely say, uh, on behalf of Gabor, that you know, uh, of of course that you know things can happen genetically. Stress hormones can, in fact, um, uh, activate certain kinds of genes. Yes, 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 that that can happen, but it's it's only part of a much larger picture. I mean, what you have to ask in the kinds of examples that Gabor has used um, is. You know, where did those stress hormones come from in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why was it? I mean, he's talking about the Nazis invading Hungary, right, where his where his mm-hmm. mother went, and he's saying, well, yeah, um, the, the 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 stress hormones activated by that um, were a result of a, of a of a military invasion. But now look at the world now, and you, and you'll see that there's there's very large number of wars going on all at once and and why are these wars going on all at once well they you know it's it's pretty clear why they're going on it's it's because there's you know there's there's geopolitical competition and there's a you know imperial rivalry going on and and um, it's it's in that level of analysis in the in the global level of analysis i think that we start to begin um having hope for a solution it's as you said earlier I mean, you can't change a person's genes but you can sure as hell change a government when it's when it's going mad as as the american government and the canadian government both are you know conducting all these wars all over the world well they're producing a lot of stress hormones mm-hmm. and yeah we, we we can do something about that yeah i wanted to uh pursue this a little more uh because the part i was reading recently was about after people are born, um, there's still things that turn on and off their genes throughout their development. I mean, for many years into puberty, uh, even later, you know, is it all the environmental stressors. He was talking about trauma, traumatizations, and you know, when people are traumatized all the time when they're growing up as children, it's much more likely that they will become addicted, and it seemed to make a lot of sense to me. Oh, sure, sure. Um... I mean, people, a lot of people, I just want to say it in a different way. I'm not disagreeing. 
Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are growing up in in terribly fragmented environments in which they you know they really don't feel like anything very good is happening for them, and they're you know they're experiencing traumas, and they're at the same time that they're experiencing traumas, they're not experiencing the kind of of uh, social integration experiences which would overcome traumas, which would balance them out, mm-hmm. and 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 there lies there lies the tremendous problem. But you know you can you can put your attention either on on making it possible, trying to help people to adapt to a crazy world, or in trying to to make the world more sane. And I think we've gone about as far as we can in the addiction field in terms of trying to help people to adapt to a crazy world. But what we know is that our, you know, our, our treatments don't work that that well. Mm-hmm. None of them. Um, you know, we we all have our favorites and this and that. But but we all know, I mean, people in the treatment business, like myself, I'm a psychologist. You know, we know that that none of our treatments are are going to do much about this problem on a large scale. If we're going to confront this problem on a large scale, we're going to have to deal with the what it is that, that makes the world so unwholesome. Some of the things are obvious, you know, like wars. But some of the things are not obvious at all. Um, like, it's, it is the case that people grow up in perfectly normal homes. They, you know, the, the Nazis do not invade their neighborhood and, and um, all the same, they become addicted. The, the the kinds of stressors, if you if you like that word, the kinds of stressors that that make people vulnerable to addiction are sometimes extremely subtle, and um, it, it's that that I think needs to be explored. The, the the social context in which so many people in all social classes are vulnerable to addictions of so many kinds. That's our that's our crisis. Do you think it's because uh, people are isolated and society's fragmented? People can't they don't have a village anymore, you know, where everyone knew each other? Is is that part of it? Sure. I mean, I think that's at the heart of it because I mean, if you if you put it in those I mean, I think you you you've chosen a good framework to put it in. Let's talk about a village. I mean, what happens in a village is everybody's connected, everybody's got obligations and and alliances and friendships and love interests and all that's you know, people are, are engaged in that kind of a of a network. Take away that network. What have you got? You've got you've just got a a dislocated person that's got really nowhere to turn and, and, and what can you do if you're a dislocated person? What can you do about it? Well um, if all else fails, you can develop an addiction, because an addiction provides you with a substitute for a for a, a really well integrated life, right? So if you got mm-hmm. if you got nothing for a life, well, you can at least go to the bar, and you can sit down and talk to the guys, and you can tell the same old lies night after night, and the same old jokes night after night, and, and nobody cares because. You know, you're just there to get drunk and, and um, you know, develop some kind of, you know, best substitute you can for for really having a life. I think that's the, the essence of addiction, not only in the case of alcoholism, but in the case of drug addiction and in the case of, surely, obviously, video game addiction 
and in the case of money addiction and sex addiction and so forth, right on down the line. In, in, in every case, what you've got, I think, is people who are dislocated, isolated, alienated, whatever you want to call it, trying to put together some substitute for a life. And addiction works, well, not perfectly, but, but it, it, it does kind of work, and that's why it's so hard to give up. Um, now, I've shifted, you see, right out of a a brain analysis or a gene analysis or any of that stuff. And I'm just talking about it in terms of common sense, the way that I think our, our, our grandmothers or our great-grandmothers or our great-great-grandmothers talked about it and understood it. But I, I think what we've done is we've, we've covered up the obvious in the, in, in the field of addiction, and we, we really have to uncover it if we want to get somewhere with it. Well, it struck me many times that a lot of people use their AA meetings as sort of their village. It's oh, sure. social network, and it does seem for many people to uh, help to fill that role, at least to some extent. Oh, it's 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 fine. I mean, I, 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 I like AA fine, and, and, and I like all the treatments <laughs> as, as far as they go. You know, I, I mean, AA does provide people with a, a kind of a social group, and it's, and a, you know, kind of social support and some reminders when when they're not doing the right thing. It's it's terrific, but what we know is that it it only helps a tiny fraction of people, mm-hmm. and and that it you know sometimes it does more harm than good. And that but it does help some people, and it, and I think it does to the extent that it does. It does because it's it's giving people an alternative. It's giving people a, a kind of a social world, but it can't be a real social world, right? Because because AA groups have to be limited. There can be no political content or or mm-hmm. partisan religious content or anything like that because of, then people would start to fight and you don't want them to fight. So, you you know, AA groups or NA groups or any of them have to be sort of abstract. They have to be very superficial as groups, and that's their limitation. They can't, they can't really fulfill the function that they need to, to fulfill for very many people, but they fill it for some, and God bless them. You know, they really help some people very much. Well, I find in my own experience a couple things that were helpful. Uh, one, well, I've created my own online support group and live support group that's based on harm reduction principles, and that's been very helpful to me just, you know, to give me a village of people. I've also been in, I've been involved with a church, and... Uh, well, there's a lot of West Indian people there, and they still have much more of a village mentality than a lot of New Yorkers I live around. And so I've also been accepted into that village, and it's been very helpful to me uh, socially, mentally, all around. Well, that's the kind of advice that I give people who are addicted, no matter what it's to, you know, is, is um, you know, reach out. There's all these people around who really want you to join up with them and it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a support group. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be an addiction support group, I mean, any kind of group, because mm-hmm. people really need you out there um, to be, you know, to be part of their movement, part of their group, and, and I think that's that's really helpful. I think one of the things we know from the natural recovery literature is that when people do recover without treatment, that's how they do it, right? They They, they get involved in something, whether it's a church or a, or an ethnic group, or whatever, whatever the heck it is. Um, quite often in Canada, it might be a, a Native Indian ethnic group. Um, yeah, that's really important. But, but again, my point, my my take-home message is that's not enough. 
even though that may help individuals uh, and it may be good enough for some individuals, it's not good enough to solve the problem. Well, what we're looking at here is a flood, a tsunami of addiction, which is which is rising, and we see it in the kids and in the young adults. It's it's not that there's less now than there was before. There's more. There's always more, and we have to we have to uh, you know address it at the source if we're ever really going to bring it under control. And we have to bring it under control because tsunamis, you know, eventually people drown as societies are destroyed by these things. So we you know we really have to address it at the source. I believe. I think that's a good note to close on. And uh, Dr. Alexander's website is The Globalization of Addiction. He has a book by that same title that's available on Amazon. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Alexander. May I say globalizationofaddiction.ca. It's, it's in Canada. .ca. <laughs> Thank you very much. And you're, and you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Okay, and next week our guest will be Sue Purchase, who has worked uh, from the start with Needle Exchange in Minneapolis, and uh, Dr. Carlo Di Clemente, who has worked with uh, Prochaska and Norcross on uh, the book uh, Changing for Good and the, uh, the Stages of Change model, which is a very influential and important model of addiction. So thank you, everyone, for listening tonight, and good night, everyone. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.